Hi, welcome to Misdeeds and Intrigue. I'm your host, Larissa. And I'm your host, Carrie. We have so much to get to today. Well, let's get right into it. The show Real Housewives of Dubai, I know I've talked about Carolyn Stanberry before. She recently admitted that she had knew Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew, and she'd been on the plane. And- Did you know Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah, met them. I was very good friends with yeah. all of them. I guess she admitted during the reunion, but I don't yeah. think Andy wow. realizes. he. She actually wow. dated Prince Andrew. He dated everything, yeah. And she was this socialite. I think she was 24, maybe. Yeah. But she had actually dated him. Because he was going through that time period where he was like letting chicks sit on his mom's throne. And and his mom, I think she totally indulged him. He was the favorite. And I think Charles and Anne have had to sit around and watch him just... Well, that's why I'm thinking Charles is not going to abdicate or let William have the throne anytime soon. He's been waiting his whole life for this. And it almost got torpedoed when Camilla Gate happened and when he got a divorce. So he's like hey, there's no way anyone is taking this away from me. I lasted through that whole divorce period, the affair. I'm not going anywhere. It would be smart of him to do it. I think the monarchy stands a greater chance of surviving if you were to say, like he thinks it's all, you know, butterflies and unicorns right now, but you're right. It's a honeymoon phase. No, not the honeymoon phase. She actually passed away, Queen Elizabeth, but it is that phase of everyone still liking the monarchy because they feel for her. Oh yeah. And you're already kind of seeing a little bit of pushback. Like um, some of the commonwealths are kind of in a little bit of rumblings now that she's not there anymore. Omid, why is keeping the Commonwealth together so important for the monarchy? Well, the Commonwealth, as we've spoken over the recent days, one of the largest parts of the Queen's legacy. When she took over from her father, there were just eight countries in that Commonwealth, and now there's 56. They call it a sort of voluntary uh, organisation, but of course there's an importance there as well. Every two years there's a Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. It brings together countries and convenes world leaders to have important conversations that can benefit each other by having that close relationship. But of course, it comes with controversy as well. It was once called the British Commonwealth. It has ties to the Britain's strong colonial past. And of course, there are many now who are keen to break away from that. The Commonwealth actually grew under Queen Elizabeth. But as you mentioned, there are some countries that have already broken away and others, as CJ mentioned, that are poised to follow suit. So how delicate of an issue is this for the king? Well, within the 56 Commonwealth countries, there are 14 Commonwealth realms that still have the monarch, now King Charles III, as head of state. And many of them had expressed before the passing of the Queen that she would probably be their last monarch. Mm. So, of course, now there have been talks, we've already heard from Antigua and Barbuda, from their Prime Minister, that within the next three years, there'll be a Republic referendum, and other countries will follow suit. Of course, we have to remember that Charles went over to Barbados as they declared their independence and broke away from the monarchy last year. So, that will have a domino effect. And it's something that he's sort of made peace with. I think he said quite vocally that this is something he knew would happen as these countries get stronger and find their own voices. He sees them as allies rather than part of that realm that we speak about. Yeah, I mean, even Ireland, there's been so much 
talking to my mother-in-law who's from Ireland. Oh, what do you think about the queen dying? She's like, oh, I'm not even paying any attention to it. As long as they have eight counties up north, immediately. It was just like, and I mean, there's been a lot of hateful banners in like soccer games and Africa, a lot of places. And now Wales is talking about maybe trying to push and not have even the Prince of Wales. And I just see now there's just going to be rumblings right now of even Wales and Scotland and Ireland and all this. Just it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And who knows if it's even strong enough to survive, even with William and Kate. Exactly. People may just look at it as some silly pageantry that they have to pay for. And why? Why? Why pay for that? They were doing a 359 pound renovation, million, 359 million pound renovation on Buckingham Palace that the people have to pay for. But the thing is, is like a lot of it, the government does pay for some of these things, but they do have private monies, Cornwall and all that. Andrew does not, is not rolling in the dough. He's been paid off so much. And then, you know, he spends it just as quick Mm -hmm. as he makes it. And I think that's part of the reason why he wants to come back. I just don't even, I don't even think she would have lasted in the time of today if she had suddenly become queen. It's just not. Yeah. Part of it is the secrets and the smoke and mirrors and all that. The whole thing was that she became queen so early in her life and at such a different time period. And it became routine to see her as the head of state, you know, the queen. On my 21st birthday, I welcome the opportunity to speak to all the peoples of the British Commonwealth and Empire, wherever they live, whatever race they come from, and whatever language they speak. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. And it's almost like tradition, but at this point, now the tradition has died. So you may see more pushback. I mean, you'll always have your royalists who are not going anywhere, who wait in... I guess the line, when they finally cut the line off to view the casket, I believe it was 16 Mm -hmm. hours was what they cut it off at. So you'll always have the people that are loyal, but around the world, not so much. The Commonwealth, not so much. And um, like you said, Ireland, Wales, I don't know. It's up in the air. Because I listened to a lot of BBC and like uh, Witness to History, and they were talking about how Cyprus had got their independence, but then a few years later, they voted to go join the Commonwealth and then the Queen visited and they were like picketing her or booing her, which I never even heard of. And they were saying like, the people don't realize she's just a figurehead. Like she really has, they're supposed to be apolitical. And that's what they kept trying to stress to Meghan Markle. Like we're supposed to be apolitical. We're supposed to be unifying. We Mm. don't, we don't get involved with politics. They're like goodwill ambassadors in a way. She wasn't really a decision maker. Like she didn't get to, even though she had, they always talk about all these papers that came in every day, you know, her famous red box or. It's more or less just to brief her on what's going on. And if there was something that she could help with or lend a hand in or a narrative that she could deliver, but she was 
or write the, you know, letter when you turned a hundred, she would sign the letter. But she was so fantastic at the poker face and not letting any, not letting her, I mean, not being embroiled in scandal. I mean, she's the least, I mean, you'll never find that again, ever. And she was devastated when all three out of four of her children divorced all in one year. It was, she called it like the, like the horrible year. And like, it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Like, did we all have to do it the same year? Couldn't they pace that out a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least they kind of got it all out of the way, but yeah, I felt in the nineties, that's all you saw on the headlines of like star and inquire and all that. Andrew's divorcing. Charles is divorcing. I still, every time I look at King Charles, I just can't get the Camilla and Charles tapes out of my head. I can't. Oh, I know. It just plays over and over. I'm spitting now. Sorry about that. <laughs> the thing, what's so interesting about her, I know people, I think even the queen said she looked kind of well-worn or used or whatever. When she was younger, she she kind of was not, I don't, they called her like kind of lazy. She wasn't one to, I think she's risen to the occasion of what her job has been, but she didn't, never was trying to do a lot in life. Like she kind of, she came from money or whatever and was content, but she wasn't like overly ambitious or trying to be glamorous and all that. But This higher profile is against all her instincts. Can she overcome her legendary reticence and become a persuasive figure? She certainly has the ability to communicate well on an individual level and among a small group. Her great-grandmother, Alice Keppel, started the 20th century as Camilla ends it in the arms of a prince. She was King Edward VII's mistress. She was a very vivacious, very attractive, very charming woman, very sensuous kind of woman. There was Italian blood in her family. And um, so in a way, she caught his eye and uh, he never really looked back. He was very taken with her. She was the perfect king's mistress. King Edward VII was a very restless, very difficult man. She knew exactly how to handle him. So she was, as I say, the perfect mistress for a king, for a man like him. Edward, like Charles, first spotted his future mistress at an equestrian event. Their relationship, noted a courtier, warmed up like a bonfire. In those days, there was no scandal about that kind of thing. The general public didn't know about it at all. If photographs of them appeared in British newspapers, then her face would be airbrushed out. You would see her hat, you'd see her dress, but you wouldn't actually see who it was. In that way, the newspapers were very discreet about it. Historians believe that Mrs. Keppel's second daughter, Sonia, was the king's child, making Camilla his great-granddaughter. There were two daughters. It was Violet and there was Sonia. And uh, as the second daughter, Sonia, was born after Alice Keppel had met the then Prince of Wales, it's quite likely that, that he was her father. No one can know this kind of thing for sure. But I think it is more than likely that um, the future King Edward VII was Sonia Keppel's father. The ghost of Alice Keppel watched over a new generation of royal lovers. For in the year she died, Camilla was born. How come Charles didn't get to her before her husband did? Did she marry right? Well, he dated her. No, this is what happened. They were friends or whatever. He was Charles was interested in her. Mm-hmm. She dallied with him, but her eye was always on her husband, Parker Bowles, or whatever his name was, Tony. He was seeing other women. And so, of course, mm-hmm. for you know, a younger woman that yeah. like whets the appetite or whatever. So she dallied with him. He got sent away. She got married. Mm-hmm. 
but they maintained friendship and but Charles always was like I think from the first like that was going to be his wife when did she actually become interested in Charles then like if she I was think so it was infatuated like, with was it Thomas or Tony Bowles Thomas um, right I, I think it was Tony I thought Anthony Parker Bowles and I think what happened is towards the end of their marriage obviously he was stepping out and all that and they were kind of cohabitating but doing their own thing and I think that's when it kind of went from friendship to something more because I mean, Charles would come and visit the kids and everything and her husband, like when they were a couple. But I just think it almost reminds me of um, Wallace Simpson. The king had just decided like that was going to be his wife. But in this case, at least Camilla returned the affection. Because Andrew was good friends with Anne too, right? Princess Anne. So she, they were all kind of in the same crowd, the running crowd early on. Charles would have even thought of marrying that after a divorce. It would have been, oh, it would have saved us all a lot. Of, we would have nothing to talk about at this point. Put it that way. Very boring. It would be like two dowdy people getting married, no handsome offspring, no, nothing like that. It would just be boring. Ciao, darling. 16 months younger than Camilla, Prince Charles's birth in November 1948 assured the continuation of a dynasty still haunted by the abdication only 12 years before of King Edward VIII. At the coronation five years later, courtiers convinced themselves that the child of so reliable a monarch as Queen Elizabeth would never risk the throne merely for the love of a woman. On the balcony that day, a young page boy called Andrew Parker Bowles. At 10, Camilla was sent to Queensgate School, a short walk from the other family home in London's Kensington. Ever sporty, she excelled at fencing and, of course, riding. As she matured, she became, if not a beauty, then extremely appealing to the opposite sex. She was an enormously attractive girl, very popular, um, quite snooty and quite sort of difficult to get to know. Um... Twin set, pearls, tweed skirt, that sort of thing. Did she have sex appeal? Yes, great sex appeal. I mean, as far as I can see as a female, I would say so, yes. She could have got any boy she wanted to. Strangely enough, when I read at the very beginning that Charles was seeing somebody called Camilla, instantly I read that, I thought, I bet that's Miller. I bet that's Camilla. I wasn't the slightest bit surprised when I found out it was. I... I almost knew it would be. She was perfect for him. Few Queensgate girls were destined for university. The school turned out well-bred conformists, but Camilla wasn't one of them. My ex-wife and uh, was at school, shared a room with her actually at, uh, at Queensgate, and um, smoking in those days was considered pretty naughty. I mean, I think it was a, you could either be sent down or gated or had to spend some long moments at home contemplating your fate if you were caught smoking. And uh, she certainly apparently used to, um, uh, used to go out on the roof and smoke. And my wife was far too frightened to do that. The hermetically sealed society Camilla was destined for, where no outsiders intruded, encouraged its members to find spouses from its own ranks. We were, I guess, all prepared to meet the right man go to the right parties, to do this, the deb, debutant scene and eventually marry somebody that could keep you in luxury to which you had been accustomed to living with mummy and daddy. We were certainly discouraged to meet anyone from any other sphere. 
both by school and our parents. So it was a very small circle, really, of boys from all the top public schools. Freed from formal education and with no need to find a career, Camilla Shand found her amusement at the polo field. In the early 70s, still a relic of empire, polo at Smith's Lawn in the shadow of Windsor Castle was an enclosed world for tough guys and beautiful girls. Today they talk about chucker charlottes, whereby girls go there to pick up their future husband. And there was always something nice to drink and the weather would be decent and uh, it's not like sort of standing on a freezing grouse moor. Polo's always been the great summer game and uh, all the young guards officers um, who'd be uh, stationed at Windsor would naturally play at guards. One such was Andrew Parker Bowles, a handsome cavalry officer whose skills far outshone those of the newly arrived Prince of Wales. Among the prettiest girls at Smith's Lawn, Jane Ward was one of the chucker Charlottes to catch the Prince's eye. I don't think we were in a category um, when I was sort of doing it, except for that, you know, it's the summer, so you're always brown, and it's the sort of the predominance of blonde... Um, all long floating blonde. We hadn't got into the Gucci sunglasses, but we were perhaps in the designer. We were going that way. The women weren't, you know, if they weren't South American, they were well-travelled, you know, Hillary Westons and, you know, Kate Vesties in those days and things like that. And so they were always... So there was a lot of health and, you know, vibrancy, I suppose... It was the era of Prince Charles. His father had stopped playing and Prince Charles had sort of taken over. I mean, he was quite a loner when he was there. I mean, it was difficult for him to be, to be sort of mixed with all of us. I mean, he couldn't sort of just rush around and be... because he's the Prince of Wales. In the hot summers of the early 70s, Smith's lawn began to sizzle with sexual tension. He was a very attractive single man, driving his Aston Martin crashing around, you know, falling off, jumping back on. I mean, he was just part of the, the team, really. Still in his early 20s, Charles was making slow headway in forging relationships with the opposite sex, often preferring friendship to passion. We were just good mates. Good, good, you know. I mean, perhaps because I didn't stand on ceremony. So, And in those days, you know, it was quite rare for him to have someone who spoke their mind... While Charles's friendship with Jane Ward was light and uncommitted, Camilla's relationship with Andrew Parker Bowles was far more serious. But a chance encounter in 1971 finally brought the two lovers together. For Charles and Camilla, none of the starchy formality which surrounded the meeting between their famous ancestors. The atmosphere at Smith's Lawn was pleasantly laid back. I think that everybody was aware there was a very strong friendship uh, between the two of them. Um, you know, they'd be talking and chatting and... Uh fooling around, you know, as one did. I mean, I think that body language is a strange... Uh, body language perhaps gives more away than, than anything else. And there was definitely a feeling of ease and comfort between the two of them, which you... you know, and that sort of familiarity, which isn't over-familiar, which means that, you know, you, you get on well and you know each other well. It was Camilla who made the first move. She teased Charles, my great-grandmother and your great-great-grandfather were lovers, so how about it? It was a challenge the prince found irresistible. Mama, you just got me so high, someone stop me. I think maybe we should do this every day. 